All right, we're going to be in the book of Matthew again, Matthew chapter 18, and your Matthew will be back with you uh, next week. We're uh, finishing our rotation time. We're going to continue this morning, Matthew chapter 18. A few years ago, I stumbled across uh, a blog. The title of the blog was The Honest Toddler, and uh, it was actually written by a mom, but from the perspective of a toddler, and she posted a chart. It was a translation chart, so translation of... Uh, what a toddler means when he says, I'm sorry. All right, so, when I say I'm sorry, I really mean. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I got caught. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't run faster. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't eat the evidence. When I, <laughs> when I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't hit him hard enough that he would be afraid to tattle. That's what I mean when I actually say I'm sorry. We learned when we had toddlers that we didn't really want them to say I'm sorry. We wanted them to say, please forgive me and I forgive you. All right? We wanted them to learn really deep reconciliation, not superficial, well, I'm sorry. Sorry I got, got caught, sorry I didn't run fast enough, sorry you know, didn't eat the evidence, whatever. No, really learn how to forgive. And that's a, that's a difficult life skill to learn. For toddlers, I would argue even for adults. I want you to listen to these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, Luke chapter 17. He said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they said, Jesus, are you serious? You can't be serious. That's impossible. How can, we, how can we do that? So i got to tell you, uh, this morning, my wife and my daughter followed me over uh, to Creekside Campus. And uh, any time that my, my wife gets to hear me speak at the end of my sermon, she always says to me, that was your best sermon ever, right? And if you know my wife, she, she believes that, right? In the depths of the sincerity of her heart, she really believes that. Her spiritual gift is encouragement. So, I mean, every time, it's, man, that is the best sermon, Brian, ever. And I know reality, right? I don't just get better every week, you know. But in her mind, what you're about to hear is my best sermon ever. Might be, you might get to the end and go, ah, no, I've heard better. Um, even from Brian. Might not be best. But I, I promise you that for some of you, it'll be the most important that you'll hear from me, because there's some of you who have been wronged and wronged really deeply, and you have held on to that, and it just, it tears you up. And you need to learn how to forgive, right? To really be healthy and whole, as God designed you to be, you need to learn how to, to forgive. Now, there are others of you, you're hearing the topic this morning, we're talking about forgiveness, and you say, ah, you know, really, I haven't been wrong like that, and I'm, I'm a pretty good forgiver, or whatever, Right, so my word of encouragement to you today is that you will be wronged, so take notes. Right? It, it happens to every person at some point in time. Someone wrongs you, and they don't repay the debt, or they can't repay the debt. They won't, and you have to learn how to forgive. Right, so we're going to listen this morning to what Jesus has to say about forgiveness. He actually, in the book of Matthew, starts his discussion of forgiveness in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Chapter 6, pray then in this way, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He begins to introduce the topic, but then Jesus addresses it throughout his ministry. And where I really want to focus our attention this morning is on Matthew chapter 18. So if you have not turned there yet, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. Let's begin reading together. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and he said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So a little bit of historical context here. In Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that you had to forgive. You're obligated. If someone repents and they ask your forgiveness, you must forgive them. If they ask a second time, you are obligated to forgive twice. If they ask a third time, possibly, right? Possibly. Never four. Right? I mean, they, they went on record as saying never four. Three is the absolute limit. So when Peter comes and he says, Jesus, I'm willing to go seven times, he thinks he's making this magnanimous gesture that he'll go way beyond what the rabbi said, and he'll go seven times. And Jesus says, no, I say to you, 70 times seven. So what's Jesus saying? When somebody hits 491, then you're done? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, forgiveness by its nature should be limitless. Forgiveness should be unbounded. And so he goes on and he tells Peter a parable to help him understand how we should forgive. Let's read in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So what Jesus does here is he tells a parable of the kingdom. He did a lot of parables of the kingdom. And in these parables, the, the king is the father, God our father. And Jesus, as his anointed one, his son, representative, has the authority to interpret what the kingdom is like. Right? Let me explain to you what God's kingdom is like, what, what things are like in his realm. And in the parable, it's designed that Peter would see himself as one of the characters, particularly the slave, and that we, who are listening in, would see ourselves as one of these characters. And remember, the question is this, Peter says, how often should I forgive? And Jesus is saying to him and us, well, let's start by looking at this a different angle. Let's start with looking about how much you need to be forgiven yourself before we talk about how often you should forgive and Jesus' first point is this. We are graciously forgiven. Let me put the debt in context. Denarius was a day's wage. Common laborer made one denarius per day. A talent was 6,000 denarii. A talent was the largest denomination, the largest monetary denomination. 10,000 is literally a myriad in Greek. That's the largest numeral in Greek. So the largest numeral times the largest denomination gives us 10,000 talents, or roughly 60 million days' wages, or 300 tons of silver, 
To put this in context, that's probably more than all of the coinage that was in circulation in the nation of Egypt at that point in time. Right? So when Jesus pulls out this number, what he's saying is this man owed a gazillion dollars. Right? He owed far more than he could ever possibly repay. And so the king's only recourse is to sell him. Verse 25. It says, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. A slave was worth about one-tenth of a talent. So if the king sold the man, his wife, and assumed they had eight children, Altogether, they would make up one talent. And he owed 10,000 talents. And so the king's only recourse is to sell. But even if he sells, he cannot recover the debt. So the slave falls on his knees and he begs for forgiveness. And he is released of the debt graciously. Right? This is grace. Far beyond anything that he could possibly deserve. Read with me again, chapter 18, verse 26. It says, So the slave fell to the ground, and he prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Why did he forgive him? Because he promised to repay? No, the, the king knew it was utterly, literally impossible for him to repay. He made a promise. He made a bold declaration, as we often do. I'll never do that again, Lord. But the king knew that he couldn't repay. He released him from the debt because that's who the king is, right? It says the king was moved with compassion. It literally, that, that refers to his inward parts and his, the deepest parts of his being. He was moved because that's the nature of the king. This is a parable about the kingdom. What's the king life like? The king is merciful and gracious and compassionate and kind, and he releases him from the debt freely, which really is, in a sense, the, the essence of the gospel, right? The man can't pay. So who ends up paying? The one who's owed, because the money is gone. It can never be recovered. Even if he sells the slave, he cannot recover the debt. First principle in forgiveness is this. It's always costly to the forgiver. Right? Forgiveness is, is always costly to the forgiver. First Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Right? Our sins, his body. He was not hanging there for any debt that he owed. Our sins, his body. That is, we owed a debt to God, but God absorbed the debt himself. He recovered the debt by paying the debt himself. Now, I want you to understand the the implication of that for each and every one of us. What God is saying to you is, you are so valuable to me that I will purchase you out of sin and death and slavery with what is most valuable to me, that is, the life of my son. God says... God who is right, creator of the universe, maker of all things, owner of all things, the only one who can actually attach real value to anything because he made it. He says, this is how valuable you are to me. You are worth the life of my son. So Christians, we should really never have an issue with self-image. Ever. It doesn't matter what any person thinks about you or says about you and your value in the world. 
God says, and God is the only one who knows or can actually properly evaluate anything, he says, this is how much you're worth to me. You're worth the life of my son. Now, a corollary to that is, that's how much God values the person who wounds you. And that's how much God values the person that you wound. So when you learn how to seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness, you are valuing people like God values people. Let's keep reading in the parable, chapter 18, verse 28. It says, But that slave who had been forgiven, he went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. I read those last couple of verses, and I say to myself, oh, yikes, right? Um, What's going on here? Remember Peter's first question. How often must I forgive? And Jesus says, well, let's reframe that question. Let's talk about how much you need to forgive. And the design is that we would see ourselves, as Peter would, in that slave who had a debt that he couldn't pay. And, you know, we read the first part of the paragraph, and we go, okay, I can relate to that. I I have a debt that I owe to the Lord, and I can't repay it. But then as the story goes on, we realize, man, this person that I've just kind of related to in the story and identified myself with is really, this is a jerk. This is not a nice person at all, right? He is, he's owed a debt, but it's a small debt. It's 100 denarii. It's three to four months' wages. Um, it's, it's an amount that probably the man could reasonably pay off. But when he says, hey, I can't pay you right now, but just give me a little bit of time and I will repay you and makes a promise. <laughs> the slave grabs him in the middle of the street and just he starts choking him, right, and shaking him. He's making a scene. I mean, this is, a, this is a highly unpleasant character that now we've identified ourselves with. But what Jesus is trying to demonstrate to Peter is the answer to the question Forgiveness must be unlimited. Forgiveness must be unbounded. Peter, let me explain to you why you must not put limitations on forgiveness. Two reasons. The first is this. To avoid torment. Okay, I'm guessing that this caught your attention, right? I'm guessing that this caught your attention initially. Chapter 18, verse 34, let's read it again. It says, his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Same idea that he spoke about in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What's Jesus saying? Is he saying, if you don't learn how to forgive, then you can't have forgiveness of sins. If you don't learn how to forgive, you can't have eternal life. If you don't learn how to forgive, you're going to forfeit eternal life. Or if you don't learn how to forgive, you're going to prove you never had eternal life. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. 
And I don't think he's talking about heaven and hell. I want you to notice two words in this parable. The first is the word brother. Beginning in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus has, begins to speak an extended section where he talks about the community of followers. Right? The community of disciples who are following Jesus. And he says, you are brothers. Here's how you treat one another. When you see a brother sinning, go to that brother, confront that brother. If he repents, you've won him back into fellowship. If he doesn't repent, take another brother along, confront him again. If, if he repents, you've won him back into fellowship. If he doesn't respond to that, then bring him before the whole assembly of the, the brethren, the, the followers. They put moral pressure on him so that he will be convicted of sin and return to the fellowship. He's talking about the community of followers, right? Brothers, the community of followers. So let me make a, a distinction here between being in relationship with God and being in community or fellowship with one another and with God. At the moment that you believe Jesus died for your sins, the debt of sins is removed, God becomes your father, and you become brothers and sisters, part of a family, and you will remain part of that family forever because the father is faithful and he guards and protects his family. However, once uh, children are born into a family, right, Sometimes they don't behave well toward one another. At least that's what I'm told in some families, right? Somewhere, sometimes, the children don't treat each other nicely and they don't respond well to their parents. And so they're still part of the family, but man, there's tension, right? The the relationships aren't really working well. What has to happen? Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Jesus is talking about the family of God. Let me illustrate. 1 John chapter 2, John said, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. John says, you know, the reason I'm writing this letter is because you, children, family, sons, daughters of your father, I'm writing because you're part of the family. Your sins have been forgiven. That's why I'm writing. And I want you to be able to enjoy intimacy and fellowship with one another and with your heavenly father. How does that occur? Well, chapter 1, verse 9, he said this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, why do I need to confess my sins? Jesus already forgave them. Well, because the debt, retribution, was paid, right? Poured out on Jesus. So I don't owe a debt to God for my sins. But present tense now, I'm kind of continuously making a mess in my relationships. And I'm resistant to my Heavenly Father. And so now we've moved to present tense, and he says, look, if you say that you don't have sin, you're lying. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to God. It's just not true. So what you need to do is confess. Literally in Greek, that means say the same thing. God says that's sin, you need to say that's sin. Confess it to him, and he will forgive you. He'll be faithful because he promised to. He'll keep his word because he already paid the debt in Jesus. So he can be righteous in removing the debt and restoring the intimacy of the relationship, right? So Jesus is talking about family and the relationships within family. Now, second word that I want you to notice, or I'm sure that you did notice, is the word torturers. What's Jesus talking about? Well, literally in uh, Jesus' day, there were professional debt collectors, okay? Uh, And they had more latitude than professional debt collectors have in our day. If you owed a debt that reached a certain limit, 
then the one who, to whom you owed the debt, the creditor, could come and they could turn you over to the debt collector and they would put you into forced labor and garnish all of your wages and they would uh, basically imprison you and they would give you whatever food and sleep and drink that you would get during this time of forced labor. And if you weren't working hard enough, they could torture you, which also helped kind of coerce your family to kick in, right? We want to get our father or brother or friend out of this situation so the debt gets paid repaid more quickly. What Jesus is talking about, I think, is there's a a literal referent here, and he's using it as a metaphor for the torture that people experience when they refuse to forgive. And if you have ever known anyone who holds a grudge and refuses to forgive, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It tears them up because they won't release the debt. When I was uh, first... Back in College Station, it was uh, over 20 years ago, I started preaching weekly at a, a nursing home. I'd go in and do a chapel service, and I got to know all the residents. I'd go to their rooms, and I'd wheel them down, and I heard all of their stories. And over the course of two years, I, I learned that in the nursing home, there were only two kinds of people. Right? There were bitter people and joyful people. That was it. And what I learned was their, their present condition and their history really didn't matter whether they were bitter or joyful. You could interact with people who were really in rough shape physically, sometimes mentally, who'd had really difficult lives, but they were so incredibly joyful. And then others whose situation was relatively better in life, and they were gnarly and nasty, and none of the the staff wanted to be with them at all. And what it boiled down to was, through the course of their lives, they self-selected based upon whether or not they were willing to forgive and be gracious and kind and release the debt. I want to read to you here, this is an obituary that uh, I discovered a couple weeks ago, was posted in a Houston, uh, Houston newspaper. It's an obituary of a man named Leslie Ray Popeye Charping. Okay, and I'm just going to read you just some sections of this obituary. Leslie Charping was born in Galveston on November 20th, 1942, and passed away January 30th, 2017, which was 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. (laughs) This is written by his children. He leaves behind two relieved children, along with six six grandchildren and countless other victims, including an ex-wife, relatives, friends, neighbors, doctors, nurses, and random strangers. At a young age, Leslie quickly became a model example of bad parenting. Leslie was surprisingly intelligent. However, he lacked ambition and motivation to do anything more than being reckless, wasteful, squandering the family savings, and fantasizing about get-rich-quick schemes. Leslie's life served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community, and he possessed no redeeming qualities. He will be missed only for what he never did. Being a loving husband, father, and good friend, no services will be held, there will be no prayers for eternal peace, and no apologies to the family that he tortured. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I mean, I I say to myself, first, I don't want anyone to ever write that about me, but I also wouldn't want to be the kind of person who writes that about someone. The man's dead and gone, and they're still tortured. 
they cannot release the debt. And men and women, I have known people who've been wronged by somebody, and that person has been in the grave 20 years and still has control over their lives. And it has affected, infected, might be a better way to say it, all of their other relationships, their attitude and their character. Listen to this quote from Frederick Buchner. He wrote a short book, really wonderful little book. It's called Wishful Thinking, a Theological ABC. And he just writes a short paragraph on various theological topics. And and this one on on anger and forgiveness, I think, is uh, really sharp. He says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Skeleton at the feast is you. Apostle Paul put it like this to the Galatian believers. He said, you know, you need to be careful lest you bite and devour and consume one another. It's a commentator named Lewis Smedes who wrote this. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. That's why Jesus said at the end of this parable, so will my heavenly Father do to you if each of you doesn't forgive from your heart because if you fake it, it will leak out and you will become that kind of person, shriveled up, nasty, and gnarly in your soul. And we don't want to be that kind of person. We must learn to forgive. Second reason, so that we can represent our Heavenly Father. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom. This is what the king is like. It's what God is like. And we want to be like him. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be like him. What's he like? He doesn't give people what they deserve. He gives them beyond. He shows them grace and kindness. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, you know, love, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And I said, you know, no, love your enemies. Right? Anyone can love those who love them. And give back. But I want you to be supernatural kind of people. So even your enemies, you know, your father's like this. You want to be sons and daughters? Well, he causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So if you want to be sons and daughters, you want to represent the family, then be like this. This is what God is like. And men and women, that's why we're here, right? This is why we stop. We take a moment out of a Sunday. We, we, we spend time in the Word Privately, we get together with other believers. Why? Because we want to have those sharpening moments so that we can be actually like our Father. So the question is simply this. How do we do it? Right? How do we become forgiving people? I'm going to give you uh, five ideas. Right? Five ideas, and if you haven't started writing them down, you can start now. Because I'm going to challenge you this week to, to do these things. Right? Five steps, five parts of the process. The first is this. Remember your own debt. Okay, in my opinion, this is the very beginning place of all of our own forgiveness is we remember the debt that we owe that we cannot repay. Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, Bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, What's interesting to me in this verse is that that phrase, bear with one another, literally in Greek means put up with each other. 
It doesn't mean you're even going to like these people. He says, put up with one another. Whoever has a complaint, even when your complaint is legitimate, forgive. Why? Just because you have been forgiven in Christ. Because you have a debt that you could not repay. So, you might not like the person. That person might not even ever seek your forgiveness or acknowledge the wrong that you've, that's been done to you, but you forgive simply because you have been forgiven. Right? And I would argue that really forgiveness is the, is the thing that covers the debt that other people can't or won't repay. Right? Forgiveness is, that, is the thing that covers the debt that can't or won't repay. So you know, imagine uh, my, my friend James and I, um, you know, we've gone together on this business deal, and, and I owe him some money. I owe him a bunch of money. And, um, you know, I owe him 10,000 talents, 300 tons of silver, and I can't repay, I can't repay, I won't repay. Imagine somehow, and he's getting frustrated and angry, and he keeps asking me and asking me, imagine somehow I find a way and I come up with that money and I repay the loan. Is there forgiveness? Well, no, the debt's repaid, right? So that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness covers that part of the debt that I can't repay to him or that I won't repay. In a sense, all all of the extras surrounding the 300 tons of silver. That's forgiveness. And we're called upon to forgive even when others don't acknowledge the debt. They don't ask for forgiveness. They cannot repay. The portion that cannot be repaid, we release just because we've been forgiven. That's step one. Second. Release the debt to a just judge. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus turned it over to his heavenly Father. Now Peter's going to take this concept. Chapter 4, he's going to say, Now you who are suffering injustice, keep doing good. And entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrust it to a just judge. Read with me chapter 18, verse 27. There are three words in Greek for forgiveness. Two of them are used here in verse 27. It says, The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Release and forgive. Those are two of the Greek words. Both of them, they're, they're pretty much synonymous they mean, in a sense, uh, set it free, let it go. Right? The, the release of a prisoner, the release of a slave from slavery. It's the same concept in Hebrew. Uh, he has removed our debt as far as the east is from the west. He has let it go. It doesn't mean that we pretend there is no debt. It means that we turn it over to the divine collection agency. Right? We, we assume that God is going to know the best manner and the best timing in which to recover the debt. We're trusting God that because he is just, he will put all things right in the universe. And we can trust him to do that, even with the debts that are owed to us. So we, we turn it over and let God be the one who collects the debt. Second, or third rather, Seize the opportunity. Remember James told us, he said, Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter multifaceted trials. Why? Because these are the things that develop character. And I will tell you, one of the greatest trials that any of us will ever face is being wronged 
and needing to forgive. And when we have those moments, we have opportunity to have character developed in us, character that actually reflects the nature of God. How else can you learn to forgive if you never get wronged? I mean, it'd be wonderful if you go, man, I just found the best book on forgiveness, right? And it's only 20 pages. And I, I read the book on forgiveness, and I got it, man. That character is now a part of me. I'm a forgiving person, right? That's not how character is developed, is it? Character is developed in a, in a crucible. And it's challenging, and it's hard, and it's purifying. And so God will, in fact, allow you to be wrong so that he can develop that character quality that reflects the very nature of God in you. And our God is a merciful, forgiving God. There's a woman named Mary Karen Reed who uh, wrote this one time. She said, forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it does enlarge the future. I'm not pretending that the debt never occurred and I can't change the past. And there are things that may have been done to me that, that can never be made up for. But when I release them, I become a larger person, right? New opportunities for me and new opportunities for those that I forgive. Forgiveness is a redemptive opportunity for the people who have wronged you. God will allow you to be wronged because honestly, most people who don't know Jesus, they can't really conceive of, you know, this invisible God that you talk about that I've never seen. And you say he's forgiving and then he had a son took on human flesh and he lived 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross, rose from the dead. I don't understand even what you're talking about. And you say he's the only way that I can have forgiveness. They don't get that. But then when they wrong you and you forgive them, or when they see you wronged by someone else and they see you forgive, they begin to get a, a real tangible picture of the nature of God and his forgiveness. And they can begin to understand this is who God is. And so God allows his people to be wronged so that as we are crushed, we give off the fragrance of Christ. Another woman, Marganita Alaska, she was a journalist, novelist, a well-known secular humanist in her day. Shortly before she died, she gave an interview, 1988. And in it, she said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. And... and Everyone needs to experience forgiveness. And Christians, that's why he allows us to develop deep friendships with the people around us so that we can show them this is what forgiveness is like. Fourth step, give grace. Remember I said there are three words for forgiveness in Greek. Uh, the, the third word is charizomai. It's from the same root as the word charis or grace. To forgive is not just to release the debt but to bless beyond what a person deserves. Right? I release the debt to a just judge because I've been forgiven so much, but I also turn around and I give grace. Right? I, I bless others in return. Lewis Smedes, a commentator, said this, You will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and you feel the power to wish them well. Did you catch that? You will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and you actually feel the power, not to try to get retribution, but you feel the power to wish them well, to do good for them, to show them grace. Now, the irony is this. When I don't forgive other people, then they maintain power over me. Even when they don't even maybe know that they wronged me or they haven't acknowledged that they wronged me 
or they're dead and gone and they can't make any retribution, they still have power over me because I've been unwilling to release the debt. When I release the debt, then I have power. Charles Stanley wrote, By refusing to forgive and by waiting for restitution to be made, individuals allow their personal growth to hinge on the decision of others they dislike to begin with. (laughs) Catch that irony? They allow their personal growth to hinge on the decision of others that they dislike to begin with. We give people power over us, but when we can bless them, that's power. And that's why forgiveness is such a supernatural thing. You can't pull this off apart from a powerful work of God's Spirit in your life, stirring up both the desire and the, the, the ability, the capacity to release the debt. Now, let me make a distinction quickly here. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. You have to release the debt because that's between you and the Lord. And you've been released of a debt, so you have to release it. Reconciliation is a mending of the relationship, and that requires trust. And there may be people who have wronged you that you you cannot or should not trust. They've wronged you in such a way or to such a degree, or they're continuing to wrong you, that you need to have boundaries in that relationship, and and you, you can't trust or you shouldn't trust, right? Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Reconciliation requires the movement of both parties, requires trust to be reestablished. And trust is it's slowly earned, right? It's quickly lost, and then it's even more slowly recovered. And so there may be people, I don't know your particular situation, but there may be people in your life that, that it's unwise of you to trust them. I don't know, but I do want to challenge you with this. Maybe, possibly, God is calling you to drop that self-protection just a little bit and trust God to protect you? Maybe, just maybe God is calling you to take a little risk, drop the barrier, and make a movement toward reconciliation and toward healing of the relationship. I don't know, right? That, that really is ultimately between you and the Lord. But sometimes God calls us as Christians to be the ones who take the risk to move back toward reconciliation and toward relationship. Sometimes he calls us to be wise and to keep appropriate boundaries. And only you know that before the Spirit. But I just want to challenge you with that thought. Maybe as you're thinking about that person and you're processing how do you forgive, that God is calling you to do that. And maybe it's, it's, it's just that you, as you begin to pray, you begin to pray for God's riches and his blessing. It's not that you move closer to relationship. Or maybe there are just things that you do privately or subtly or quietly that do good for that person and bless them. Or maybe it's a movement toward relationship being restored. I don't know. But I do know this. As forgiveness begins to bear its fullest fruit, we want to do good. We want God's best for that person. And that takes time. Right? That takes a lot of time. Fifth step. Repeat. <laughs> repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat, right? You, just, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, over and over and over again, right? Over and over again, right? Because practice makes perfect, right? No, actually, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. So, if as you call that person to mind or that event to mind, that moment of being wronged or that history of being wronged, and you begin to rehearse in your mind how you will get retribution, you will become 
that nasty, gnarly, shriveled up old kind of person. That's how, who you will become, right? And, and you know, we've all been tempted in this or even practiced this, right? You, sometimes we even imagine scenarios in our minds. They're, they're just fantasy, right? They would never occur, right? The person doesn't, they don't even live in the country anymore. And you go, but I just imagine if they were to walk into Creekside campus on a Sunday morning to worship, man, I already know what I'd say because I've rehearsed that script and I'd say this, and this, and this. And as I'm firing away these really clever cutting statements and I'm just watching them just wither underneath my vitriol. It's just, oh, it's just a beautiful moment. You know, I might not even have to say anything. I could just look at him and my look would be just so powerful that shame and guilt would pour upon them. Oh, it would be awesome, right? Don't tell me you've never had any of those moments ever in your life. And if you rehearse those, you become that kind of person. Because practice makes permanent, and you don't want to be that kind of person. On the other hand, if the moment or the person or the event, the process is called to mind, and you say, but I've been forgiven a debt I can't repay. Thank you, Jesus. And you release it, and you say, God, I trust you. You will get justice. You're better at justice than I am. You get it in your way and in your timing. Set the universe right. And you release it to that just judge. And you keep on the process. How can I show grace and bless? And I do it over and over and over again. Maybe initially that wrong is so raw that it's every three seconds. Right, Satan throws it up in your mind and you've got to go through it again. And as you go through this process again, it's three minutes then you discover, wow, it's been three days. You know, it's been months. But I'm not going to rehearse the wrong and how I would get retribution. I'm going to rehearse forgiveness and grace and kindness. And then it goes years. And then you're wronged again and you get a new opportunity to develop that muscle in new ways. And you repeat it over and over again. You become that kind of person. There's a beautiful story it's told about Clara Barton. She was the founder of the American Red Cross, and one time a friend reminded her of a, a particularly cruel thing that was done to her, and it appeared that she didn't remember that wrong. So her friend said to her, don't you remember when so-and-so did this to you? And her response was this, I distinctly remember forgetting it. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Did she forget it, forget it? Oh, probably not. That's often like literally impossible for the human mind to do. You don't forget it, forget it, but you choose to say, I won't rehearse the wrong and demand retribution. Instead, I will entrust myself to the Lord. So what I want you to do this week is uh, write these out. Right? Put them on a three-by-five card, you know, post it on the mirror in the bathroom, or put it in your pocket. And you know, it may be that you haven't been done wrong, and so you just, you just camp out right there on number one. Maybe memorize Colossians 3.13 and you know, prepare for that time, or maybe there's a particular person and you need to go through this every 30 seconds, every few days. But literally, this, this is a change of habit. It's a change of practice that transforms our character and helps us actually become like God because this, this is really who he is. Another verse you could possibly memorize, Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have forgiven us in Jesus. 
I thank you that you've been merciful to us, not giving us what we deserve. Instead, showing us grace, kindness, your super abundance poured out, releasing us of our debt and, and giving us life. And Father, I pray that we would become people like you. I pray, Father, we'd become a community like you as people enter into relationships with us, that they would experience uh, your very love and kindness and mercy and grace. Be drawn to you. Father, I pray that you give us a vision for being that kind of community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week forgiving.